0: Just before I came into the sanctuary, one of the children who will remain unnamed in the sanctuary this morning came up to me and made the audacious statement, audacious statement, that uh, I might forget something. <laughs> like letting the children go. And the truth is, I hadn't thought of about it one minute this morning at all until she told me. So children, you're welcome to go to Children's Church this morning. And uh, and you are welcome to tell me anytime you want something you think I might forget, because I probably do and did. We are continuing in this series on the gospel um, you know, if you've been here, that it's been my opportunity to take some texts that sometimes I've used to bolster other texts, but have directly, in most cases, not preached from that text. Uh, today is an exception. I'm going to take a text this morning that I have spoken from, but again, it's one of those key texts that, through the years of ministry, I've, I've used often, and it it just puts in a fence post for me of of. God's grace, and so I hope it will be helpful to you as well. Let me just kind of back up a bit and give you a little bit of an overview of where we've been because it was actually three weeks ago because we missed a Sunday that we have actually been in this series. We've we've been in describing it, the gospel, because what we have been talking about is God's plan to save a people, and, uh, and what God's plan to save a people enti- entailed was that he was going to provide a righteousness for them that they didn't possess in themselves. A righteousness that they had squandered because they had sinned. And so God sets in place a plan to provide a righteousness. And one of the things we talked about about that righteousness, it comes from him and it is an alien righteousness. As I said, it doesn't reside in us. If if your hope of heaven and and having it be well with your soul one day when the Lord descends or when he calls you home before that, if your hope somehow resides in a righteousness in you, you're in trouble. A righteousness that somehow you can produce or help to produce because, folks, we have squandered it. All have sinned. All have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God that 's what that means and and except God intervenes except he does something, we have no hope, but he does do something, and He did do something in space and time in history some two thousand years ago, as he sent his son to come, and the scripture tells us that he who had no sin, the Son, God the Son, became sin for us, that we might somehow gain a righteousness that, that doesn't reside in us. He who had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And we use some language that isn't necessarily biblical language in the sense that you would find those words in the Bible, but they are biblical concepts. And that was this whole idea of double imputation That's new to you. Listen this morning. I hope if you've heard it before, it's starting to bring things back to you. But that's what that text, he who had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteous of God. The double imputation. Our sin is imputed to us. And what imputed means is that it's given to him who doesn't have it in himself. Our sin is put on Christ from outside of him. It's an alien sin. He doesn't have it in him. It's our sin put on him, imputed to him, laid over him, if you will. But that's only half of what the gospel is because we also need a righteousness. And so he who had no sin has our sin imputed to him that he might impute something back to us that doesn't reside in us. And that is a righteousness that he has and that he fully accomplished in living and dying. And the resurrection is just God's stamp of approval upon his work, that it in fact is an adequate righteousness. It is enough. And one of the weeks that we were together, we talked about the whole idea of, of realizing that our, our righteousness is in heaven. It's in heaven. It's, it's at the right hand of the Father. He is our righteousness, it's an alien righteousness. It's Christ. If you want a picture of that, he 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 lays a robe of righteousness over us, but it's his robe, not ours. It's his righteousness, not ours. And that's our hope. And when, when your sin starts to accuse you, starts to rise up in you, where do you go? Don't go inside. Don't go inside to try to find a righteousness there. It's a dead end street, and and you'll do one of two things: you'll lower the standard so you can somehow attain that righteousness, or you will you will overinflate your performance somehow to think you can rise up to some standard that's there. But neither is adequate; neither will work, because the only righteousness that will do is the righteousness in heaven, that is for all who are in Christ, and whom Christ possesses and has for us. Your righteousness is in heaven. If you're a believer today, the right hand of the father, Christ, lean into him. Let him be your righteousness today. We talked about the way that righteousness was accomplished. And it was because of the suffering of Christ that accomplished that righteousness and so 3 weeks ago we we are, are now getting close to going on now 3 weeks ago we talked about the sufferings of Christ we talked about the fact that that one of the things that the disciples had their eyes open to after the resurrection was that Jesus had to suffer if you if you have your Bibles you might want to turn to Luke chapter 24 just quickly if not just listen here quickly to what it says but um, this is on the road to Emmaus um, the two individuals which could have very well been husband and wife Jesus comes up alongside them and as he converses with them they don't recognize him and and then he begins to talk to them They still don't know who he is, but Jesus says in verse 26, these words, and this was this was the thing that flipped the switch for the disciples, changed everything for the disciples. When they understood this, up until this point, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. Their world had fallen apart. The bottom of the floor had just gone out from under them. They were undone. They were going back to their nets to fish. They didn't know what to do because it didn't turn out like they thought it was going to turn out. And what they didn't understand is it was turning out exactly how it was planned. They just didn't understand the plan. And here Jesus tells what the plan is. He says this in verse 26 to those two on that road, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets he interpreted them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the Old Testament scriptures. See that this is one story. It's one book. Not two different gods. Jesus affirms that when he said and he took the Old Testament and he showed how the Old Testament was pointing toward him. He was the mediator as we talked about. He was the true Moses if you will. And he tells them that there but the key was when they understood that he had to suffer he had to suffer down a little farther in in verse 46 of the text it says this this was after after the two had had, happened, had their eyes opened and understood that it was Jesus and then he departed from them, that le- later Jesus appears to the disciples and in verse 46, he says to them these words, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in the name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. But again... That he had to suffer. It, it was part of the plan. And, and had he not done that, you know, we talk about Christ dying for us. Yes, he, he did, but he lived for us as well. He, he lived and died perfect life and, and suffered that so that he could be our righteousness. He could, he could be our sin bearer and our righteousness producer for us. We looked at various texts as we walked through that particular scenario, texts that that talked about um his suffering. Uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost, we won't go back over all these, but on the day of Pentecost, he said it was the definite plan of God. He was he was crucified according to the definite plan of God. That's the first thing they said. Just 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 hours after the resurrection, really. It all changed. Everything was clear to them. Paul, when he spoke to the Thessalonians, when he went to them, he said to them as well, it was necessary. It was necessary. Why do they keep saying that? It's necessary. It's necessary. It's because that was the hinge. They didn't see it as necessary. They thought it was a flaw in the plan. But again and again, it's reiterated, it was necessary. The Ethiopian eunuch, remember? He's reading Isaiah 53 and he says, of whom am I reading? Who is this? And again, Philip goes to him and points to him, points out to him that it's speaking of the Christ who had to suffer. And then Paul, we didn't share this last uh, three weeks ago, but this is, this is Paul writing again. Listen to what he says in Corinthians. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to this day. Continues to be a stumbling block to the majority of them. There are pockets of where people of Jewish descent and lineage an ethnicity, come to Christ, but not in mass numbers. For the most part, he's a stumbling block. And to Greeks, it's folly. It's folly. Greeks, who are the Greeks? They're the people you rub shoulders with most often in our communities who are unbelievers. They scoff. It's folly. It doesn't fit the modern age. It, it doesn't, doesn't do well in the age of enlightenment that we're in, supposedly. It's a stumbling block. And what is the stumbling block? That Christ had to suffer. Even his own brothers, even Jesus' own brothers didn't get it. If you look at John chapter 7, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. His own flesh and blood. Oh, they liked some of it, didn't they? In fact, they were pushing him to go to Judea in John chapter 7. Go to Judea. They had had witnessed some of the things he had done. They realized that there was something unique about him and and they might be able to cash in on it. And they were saying to Jesus, quit doing it in secret. Come on, let's go. Let's move this. Let's push this thing. And Jesus doesn't give in to their timetable. He doesn't give in to their way of doing things and the way they think it ought to work to their folly but later he does go later he goes but he goes quietly he goes in his agenda because his agenda was was not about wowing people for the sake of wowing people his agenda was that he was on the road to Jerusalem ultimately he was going to suffer and had to suffer to provide a righteousness so so where does that leave us? Where does all of that leave us? What about we as his followers? His road was the road of suffering. His road was a road that was incredibly difficult. In fact, this morning, in my Sunday school class, Don Carson talked about that. He talked about the fact that those who who don't embrace Christ ultimately and 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 talked about it really with a broken heart will one day experience the wrath of God forever. I mean, that's what the Bible talks about, but God in Christ provided righteousness. So that doesn't have to be the case that, that we can take refuge in Christ, but, but he had to suffer to get there. In fact, what Carson said, and I, I think he's right. I've, I've said similar things. I, I've said it differently, and I'll say it differently a little bit than he said it today, but Christ in a in a in a closed period of time somehow suffered an eternity of suffering. Which we can't comprehend. That's why when he looked into that cup in the garden. It was so dark. You see, he took our punishment. And it is eternal punishment for all outside of Christ. And so he took an eternal amount of punishment in a finite amount of time. The physical suffering was certainly a big dimension of it. But there was other dimensions of suffering, I think, in what he endured that we can't fully comprehend and don't have to. We don't have to fully comprehend it because he took it. He endured it for us. But where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? There are many things we could say about where it leaves us. Let me take you to one and that's why we go to our text this morning. Colossians. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1 and I want to read the scripture this morning beginning at verse 24. Here's what Paul says, and I think this would be his response to us. If we would say, okay, Paul, where does that leave us now? Where does that leave us as your church in light of understanding all of that and embracing Christ? Here he says this, Paul writes, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul is talking about where it leaves him, where the gospel leaves him, where the sufferings of Christ leave him, what his place is in all of that. And at the end of that text, if we kind of work our way backwards in verse 29, he says, For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in us. One of the weeks that we were together, we we made the distinction between imputed righteousness, which is what we rest in, the righteousness in Christ. He's our righteousness. And imparted righteousness, which is actually what begins to happen in our heart. God begins to change our heart. At the moment that he imputes his righteousness to us, gives it to us, and, and makes us righteous based on his righteousness, he sees us as righteous, he begins to change us and begins to work in us and actually make us more and more righteous. Now, never can we trust in what he does in us as the basis of our standing with God because it will never be perfect in this life. It will not be perfected until we're glorified. We're changed from one degree of glory to another until one day we will be fully glorified. But but all of that work God does in us because we've rested in that righteousness that is outside of us, that alien righteousness. The book of Hebrews says we have been made perfect forever, even as we're being made perfect. That whole idea. Perfect forever by his imputed righteousness as we're being made perfect, as we're being changed. So I say that to say when he goes in verse 29, he's talking about the Holy Spirit who comes into us and begins to work in us, to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And and Paul is saying that what I do in response to his suffering I do in his strength, I do in the power that he gives me, and we're to do it in that power and what are we to do? We're to take the mystery of the gospel to the nations and our neighbors we are to We are to take that mystery and make it visible to the world around us have them to hear it and to 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 uh, be confronted with it and Lord willing respond to it. That's, that's what our response should be. But, but what is the means of us doing that? I'm going a little deeper. That, that's what should be our response to what we hear in the gospel. We should have a, something in us that wants to tell others, that particularly if, if we've come to embrace it, really come to understand it, really come to rest in it. When you start to rest in an alien righteousness, it's not yours and and realize it's it's a perfect righteousness and and it is the basis of your standing with God and you start to understand that righteousness that comes from God and how how wonderful a rest it is you want others to know it you want to tell others you want others to hear of it but God i think in this text gives us the means by which it is accomplished the means by which that message goes and so What I want to do this morning is talk specifically about the means of taking that message to the world, the means God has chosen to take that message to the world. Look at it with me now in verse 24. I think this is where we get the means. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Why does he rejoice? Why is he thankful for his sufferings? And they were They were great. Paul suffered greatly for the gospel. In fact, after he had been converted on the Damascus Road, the scripture says that God was going to show him how much he was going to suffer for this message. And so Paul had great affliction in the message. And if you go to the book of Corinthians, you will read about some of those afflictions that happened to him. But he says, I rejoice in the sufferings because it does something. It accomplishes something. It's God's means to do something, and what he says it's God's means to do, he says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. What does he mean that I make up or I fill up what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions? We have to be careful, don't we? We've talked about this before, but you have to be careful about the word lacking and get it right and get an understanding of what he means by what's lacking because he's not talking about a lack in the sufferings of Christ. They, they, as we've talked about, were sufficient. Jesus finished the work. He's at the right hand of the Father because, in fact, he is our righteousness And he's fully accomplished that. That's what the resurrection was about. That it's been fully accomplished. So, so his suffering is not somehow lacking in sufficiency to be enough. If it is, we just might as well dismiss and go home. Because if what he did is somehow lacking in the, in the, in the regards to the atonement, if, if what he did isn't enough, I guarantee you, you will never make it enough. You will never be able to make up for what isn't enough. And the gloriousness of the gospel is we don't have to. It is enough. So something else has to be lacking. This is is the way one person put it. It's not propitiation that's lacking. But it's propagation. Propagation of the gospel that's lacking not propitiation that's lacking in other words the the word propitiation or atonement he becomes our propitiation in other words he takes away he causes the wrath of god to be absorbed in himself so that we don't he who had no sin became sin for us that's propitiation he absorbed it all so it's not the propitiation part that's lacking it's the propagation of that gospel to the world that is lacking and so when paul talks about i am filling up what is lacking in christ's afflictions he is talking about the propagation of that gospel to the world and so what we do in our in our sufferings in our willingness to give our lives and and give away our lives is we are somehow making up what's lacking in the propagation of that gospel. Let me let me read what somebody else says about this. What is still lacking? They, they say it this way. We fill up Christ's afflictions or his sufferings, not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they are meant to bless. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they are deficient in worth or merit, as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions are not known to the world, all of the world. The gospel is to go into all of the world, and then he will come. What's lacking yet, what was lacking in Paul's day, what continues to be lacking in our day or Christ would have returned is that we continue to need to fill up what is lacking and that is in the propagation of that gospel to the world. It's still hidden to many. And so we must carry that gospel to the and Paul speaking to the Gentiles. Where do we get this? I sometimes you think what well, do you make that up? Is that is that come out of the blue? Where do we get grounds for this? Idea is another place in scripture. If you, in the book of Philippians chapter 2, there's a man named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus is in the church in Philippi. And the church in Philippi wants to, wants to send some things to Paul who is in Rome. They want to send some parchments or supplies or books or gifts to Paul. And so, because they can't go, they choose to have Epaphroditus take those gifts they they choose him to be the messenger him to be the one who delivers those particular gifts to Paul and uh, as he takes them he nearly dies he nearly loses his life in taking them to Paul and after he has done that and delivered them Paul is writing back to the Philippian church And we find in Philippians chapter 2 this wording. It says in verse 30 of chapter 2 For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What was lacking in their service to Paul? What was lacking in the service of the Philippians to Paul was personally taking those things to him. And so what they did is they got a messenger. They got somebody who could do that for them, who could personally present those things to Paul. What was lacking to Paul? And so again, we get the idea as we come to Philippians or to Colossians that that what is lacking is that personal presentation. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Now, this book talks about his sufferings. Um, as I said, the early church—what changed them as they talked about his sufferings and, and the importance of those sufferings, but he wasn't any longer visibly there as this message went to, to peoples and to nations through the centuries since, um, since the time of Christ. It, Christ didn't take them. His people took them. And, and when it talks about in this text, I fill up what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions, that we show the personal sufferings of Christ to the world through our own willingness to give our lives away to that, and, and in many cases, our own suffering. It's why when you read stories, and you read accounts of people who have sacrificed greatly for the name of Christ, why it, it stirs your soul, it's part of what it's talking about here. They're, they're making the personal presentations of Christ's suffering visible to the world in their sufferings. It's why there's such a power in it. This morning, as I close, I, I just want to recount a story. Some of you may have already read this story. The Voice of the Martyrs is a, is a newsletter. You, you might want to get it. But it's a newsletter of how God is causing His Word to go to all of the nations. And it's the voice of the martyrs, and it, it goes to the hard places. But many of you in the news have heard about North Korea lately. It's, they've been in the news, they're in the news a lot today. North Korea is not a friendly nation to much of anything from the outside, and particularly not to Christianity. You have read stories about how their leader has had his own uncle and others assassinated, and, and rumors that even... Even people outside the country have been assassinated by that regime. But right on on the border of North Korea, there, there's a border between North Korea and China. Um, that that's at times has has been a fluid border. In some cases, it's certainly gotten more stringent in many ways now. But that is a is a difficult place. Because what happened through the years is that because the North Koreans so oppress their people and, and really starve them to death, that m- many times they take risk of going across that border for help. And uh, I've heard stories of others tell about that border and, and about how, how uh, North Koreans come across it and how dangerous it is, really, to do any kind of, of missionary work on that border. Um, in, in, cases, in in cases, people have been warned to be careful about that border because North Korea is so vehemently opposed to the gospel and to Christ. But what happened about a year ago now was a pastor who was actually pastoring on the Chinese side of the border where North Koreans would come back and forth he He began to pastor there and was pastoring there for for a time, but all of these North Koreans or not would come across, and they were so needy that he realized he, he they needed to reach out to them they needed to help them they would come to them, starving to death so they they began to have a, a ministry, a social ministry to these North Koreans who would come across, and over time and carefully they would begin to work with these people and as these people saw their willingness to help them for no reason except to help them, they began to become open to the message of Pastor Hahn and so he carefully began to share that message. But in those places, word gets out and Pastor Hahn got on a list of of enemies of the state of North Korea. And let me pick up the story here. It says, When Pastor Han answered a phone call one afternoon, which was about a year ago, a year ago this April, at his church near the North Korean border, his wife saw no particular reason for concern. She knew, however, that for several months, both Chinese police and South Korean intelligence officers had been warning her husband that he was at the top of the North Korean hit list. Pastor Han, his wife, and other Christian leaders had even agreed on security precautions designed to protect him while allowing him to continue his ministry to the North Koreans. For example, he stopped driving on the border road. He didn't leave his house or the church alone, and he kept a very strict schedule. But after receiving the phone call that afternoon at church, the pastor uncharacteristically disregarded those precautions and left the church alone. His body was found that evening in a rural area along the North Korean border. A little later in the article, we read about one of those individuals that had contact with with this pastor. This is what he writes about him. He was led to Christ by Pastor Han, and his name is Sang Chul. He was drawn to the pastor after hearing from him in North Korea, about him in North Korea. The thing I really wanted to know from him was why he helped North Koreans, because it was very dangerous for Pastor Han to help North Koreans there. Sang Chol said, Pastor Han unconditionally loved us and treated us well with love. I felt his heart. The more I met Pastor Han, I felt more his heart came from the Lord. Without God, he wouldn't help me. That is why I realized Christianity, this is the key sentence, that is why I realized Christianity is a real religion. I think that's a picture of this text. Certainly to an extreme degree maybe, but it's, it's those kinds of things that I think this text is saying. We fill up what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction when we're willing to, to walk that road as well. Sometimes to the degree that Pastor um, Hahn was, it may be other ways. But there is something that gives validity to the sufferings of Christ, to the world as we as his followers walk in his steps, as we're willing. And it, it's, it's amazing. I, I said this as we were talking about the disciples when you when you really when they really began to understand that he had to suffer, all the pettiness left. The pettiness fell away. The pettiness about who's gonna have the closest seats to him to, to him in the kingdom? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Remember the disciples remember all those petty kinds of things that were going on among the disciples who'd walked with him for two or two years, maybe longer? At that point. They just fall away. It's perspective. It's, it's perspective. When we start to see that we follow one who had no place to lay his head, who, who had to suffer, it, it puts into perspective our lives, doesn't it? And how we follow him, how we walk after him, and the things that we get agitated about, and the things that we spend time in petty ways concerning. The scripture says that our role, I think, in seeing the sufferings of Christ is that we come to realize that we need to walk a road like that. We fill up what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction and being willing, and being willing to present those sufferings to the world around us. May God help us May God help us and may I help us to be so captured with the gospel, so captured with the gospel that it becomes so. And I think what makes it so powerful is, is that people begin to realize that only God can do that. Only God can change a heart that way. And, and they begin to see the power of God in ways that they don't otherwise. They begin to see the reality of God as that young man did as he declared it about Pastor Hahn. We're going to sing together the song we began with this morning. And the last verse of that is a prayer, really a prayer, that God would help us to do this. Let's stand together.
1: Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will and if you had not loved me first I would refuse Still, Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Now, Lord, I would. Yours alone and live so long night the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my son forever be my only boast is you Alleluia All I have is Christ Alleluia
0: Just listen this morning to Paul again and we'll close. Second Corinthians, Paul is talking about how life is pressing him, how, how he is suffering, actually. He says this, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Just feel that. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But there was a reason for that. He says this But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The reality of God. Let's pray. Father. I pray that you will help us to take the reality of our God to a world that desperately needs to see it. Some of us in this room may be called to do things like Pastor Hahn did. I don't know. But certainly, Father, we're all called to give our way, lives for this message and we pray Lord you'll help us I pray the pettiness the ways in which we all are petty sometimes just can fall away and perspective will be gained help us Lord forgive us and use us Father for the sake of a world that needs to know God is real in Jesus name Amen bless you